This is the Frankly Daniel Show, and I'm the Daniel in the Frankly part of this enterprise. It's my weekly exercise of our First Amendment rights, and it's an honor to be here today with you. Thank you so much for joining me. I promise to be good company. Your time is precious, and I appreciate it. So let's jump right in. Happy birthday to my darling wife. Her birthday is the 24th, and mine is the 29th of glorious October, making us highly improbable married Scorpios. As I approach my 72nd birthday, I find myself compelled to share a couple of things about my life. To start with, I was born in Michigan City, Indiana, three blocks off of Lake Michigan. Not that that matters, but thinking back brings a relevant story, well, actually two stories to mind. So with your indulgence, let me share these true stories with you. I believe you'll find them, at the very least, entertaining. More importantly, they lead to a very critical reality about today's political leadership. So allow me to start with the oldest story first. I spent the first nine years of life in Michigan City, among a large and loving, very American-Polish family. In the 1950s, Michigan City was a blue-collar city, housing a large Polish community. My numerous uncles, grandparents, and great-grandparents all worked on the railroad, in the steel mills, and as welders on railroad box car construction. My mother, by age 26, was the mom of four children, myself and three younger sisters. Unfortunately, at the age of 26, mom broke her back slipping off the front porch during a Lake Michigan winter ice storm. Months after she left the hospital, she still had considerable pain. The doctors recommended we move to somewhere like Arizona or Nevada, where the dry climate would likely ease her pain and the coming sure arthritis would likely pose less of a future problem. So my father, a postal clerk at the time, applied for a similar position in Scottsdale, Arizona. Back then you had to interview in person for another federal position outside of your general area. Thus, we set out on a vacation of sorts in early June of 1959, with the purpose of my dad interviewing for a job with the Scottsdale Postal Service. So we set off on a long road trip to Arizona. We were traveling in our 1957 Chrysler station wagon, the type where the very back seat faced out the back window. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. It was a fad for a while. Riding backwards has always made me car sick, so I usually sat on the passenger side of the car in the seat behind my mother's front passenger seat. We were towing a flashy silver house uh, trailer where we spent our nights in trailer camps as we motored from state to state. Now, anyone who's traveled back in the day with four young kids cross-country knows all too well how challenging something like this can be. And mind you, this is way before Game Boys, digital video, and smartphones to keep kids entertained. We finally did make it to Scottsdale. And after a couple of days of scouting around Scottsdale, we decided to travel back to Indiana by way of the Grand Canyon. But it was this decision that nearly cost all of us our lives. It was scorching hot during the Arizona days in June. So we drove with all the windows down except for the tailgate window. 
Don't forget that we were pulling a house trailer behind our 1957 Chrysler station wagon. With all the weight we were traveling with, when we hit extended inclines on the highways, our station wagon would often struggle to get above 50 miles an hour. It wasn't unusual for cars behind us to pass us while we were all trying to get uphill. Well, we hit a very steep uphill struggle on a highway just outside of Flagstaff, Arizona. The highway there was elevated more than 20 feet from the floor of the desert with steep sloping embankments or, or shoulders. More importantly, this was a two-lane highway, which meant no passing. But this didn't prevent a car from behind us trying to do just that, pass us. Of course, by law, there's no passing on an uphill two-lane highway for a very good reason. A person trying to pass can't see what's about to come over the hill. The car trying to pass us got halfway past us while driving in the oncoming lane of traffic and then saw an 18-wheeler coming over the hill. Panicked, he tried to swiftly veer back into the lane behind us, but he didn't make it. As he tried to decelerate and move back into the lane behind us, the front of his car hit our trailer, and the trailer slid off the road. Next, the trailer flipped, and in turn, the flipping trailer flipped our station wagon. And the next anyone knew, the trailer and the car went tumbling down a steeply graded 20-foot embankment. Everything, including all six of us in the car, came to a devastating stop at the bottom of that embankment. Perhaps you can't remember a time before seatbelts. Well, it wasn't until September 25 of 1961 that Wisconsin became the first state to require seatbelts in the front seat of cars in all models built in and after 1962. In fact, seatbelts didn't become mandatory in, in all the United States vehicles until 1968. So it's needless to say that on June 17 of 1959, None of us had seatbelts to put on. I was thrown out of the open rear passenger window, and I sailed through the air, landing some 40 feet away from the destroyed station wagon and trailer. I remember sitting up on the desert floor, looking around in total bewilderment and absolutely in shock. The, the trailer house was totally destroyed. I began to see a couple of people I didn't recognize. They, they turned out to be Concerned motorists who saw the trailer and car go over the embankment and tumbled down to the desert floor. At the time, I was nine years old. My sister Patty was seven, my sister Kathy was five, and sister Susie was three years old. We were taken by ambulance to the Flagstaff Community Hospital. My mother had broken her back at a different place than her break from slipping in Indiana ice the prior year. My two sisters, Patty and Susie, like myself, miraculously we sustained only minor cuts, contusions, and all three of us had concussions. But my five-year-old sister, Kathy, nearly died. She had 143 breaks and numerous bones and multiple organ contusions and lacerations. The driver who hit us, he up and ran. Yep, this hit-and-run driver was an old retired coot who should have given up his driving license years earlier. He had no business being on the road, much less trying to pass us or our long car trailer rig on a two-lane uphill highway. Uh, the Arizona Highway Patrol eventually they ran him down, 
but that's the last I ever heard of him. Everything, all our clothes and belongings were blown all over the desert floor, and the items that didn't blow away were stolen. Even the sink out of the house trailer was gone. The Flagstaff community was simply incredible. They clothed and fed us and housed us with families in the area. So after weeks in Flagstaff, the community paid for our transportation back to Indiana. But not all of us returned on that back-home trip. It wasn't until November of that year, 1959, that my sister Kathy and Mom returned to Indiana in a hospital railroad car all the way from Flagstaff, Arizona. Well, to make a long story short, soon thereafter we moved the entire family to Scottsdale, Arizona. While I was only nine years old at the time of this accident, events like this never really leave your mind. An old man, a man too old to be safely driving, nearly killed us all. When I returned to Indiana, I looked differently at my great-grandfather and a few of my elderly uncles that were in their 80s and still driving, and I, and I wondered why. Of course, back then, men were far too vain to voluntarily give up a male privilege like driving, and women of this generation didn't drive. I mean, they, they just didn't. You, you couldn't even get these old men to wear eyeglasses except in strict privacy but n never while driving. Nonetheless, we soon moved to Arizona, and all of these issues fell away in the haste of growing up in a completely new environment. So ends my first story. But now I ask you to bear with me through this second one. I promise there's a very important point to all these life events. Seven years later, it was time for me to get a driver's learner permit. Frankly, at the time, I wasn't sure I wanted to learn to drive. That Flagstaff accident had revisited my psyche. But in Arizona, a young high school kid couldn't get anywhere unless they knew how to drive. So, with my mom's encouragement and patience, she taught me how to drive. She took me for all my behind-the-wheel early driving lessons and adventures, and with her, I always felt safe and confident. However, I do remember two strange experiences during those early driving days with Mom. At the time, we were living in Mesa, Arizona. Mesa, Chandler, Scottsdale, and Phoenix always experienced a massive population explosion of snowbirds or retirees who ventured to our cities for the winter months. Let me let you in on a secret. Not all, but many old people are a danger behind the wheel, and the older they get, the more dangerous they become. Mom would always laugh and tell me someday I'd be old, so just give these old folks a break. But one Sunday morning, while Mom took me out to practice driving, we nearly got into a bizarre traffic accident at a major intersection. I was in the intersection with my left turn signal on, looking to execute the left turn. A car opposite me came into the intersection, also looking to turn left, but instead of turning right in front of me, in other words, both of us turning in opposite directions, the driver swerved to my left or to his right and drove past my driver's side window until he was behind me, and then he made a left turn. He made a left turn behind my car. I remember shouting, Mom, did you see that? I mean, Mom, did you see it? The noise of honking cars was deafening. The driver was so discombobulated after making that awkward turn, 
he drove up on the right curb and and then the sidewalk on the right side and, and he stopped and yep it was an old fart from new york wouldn't you know it and i said mom see mom these old people shouldn't be driving mom i'm gonna grow old before an old driver kills me mom but this was just the beginning of our adventures that day next we drove into a large parking lot that was part of an old standard motel complex this motel had small cottages surrounding a rather large outdoor swimming pool. These cottages were rented months in advance by, you, you guessed it, snowbirds. But the motel parking lot was an excellent place to practice lane and curb parking, especially on a Sunday morning. Just after nailing a parallel parking exercise, we saw a big blue automobile enter the lot. So Mom said, wait until he parks and we'll continue. So we waited and watched. Well, the car turned into a spot directly in front of the swimming pool. The car was from Michigan, and it was big and blue. Yep, another snowbird, I thought. As we watched, the driver's car suddenly jumped the front curb of this lot and began to speed up as it drove onto the grass between the pool and the lot, and the next thing we saw, the car was continuing until it motored right into the pool. I mean, no lie, as the car moved forward, the front of the car began to submerge and partly vanish. Cars back then were all all rear-wheel drive, by the way, and so the car continued into the pool. That is, until the rear bumper caught on the lip of the pool and remained out of the water. Nevertheless, the back wheels kept turning in the water, but that was as far as the car was going to travel. We raced over to see if there was anything we could do. Uh, reflecting later that I had no idea what you did in a circumstance like this. I mean, believe me, this was not in the Arizona State Driver's Manual. We watched as an elderly fellow eventually opened his, his driver's side door and sort of stepped or waded into the pool. Now, the water came up to just above the level of his pants belt. At first, he didn't appear upset. In fact, uh, uh, I wasn't sure that he even knew what happened. His bald white head, I remember, gleamed in the Arizona morning sun. His, his wife, at least I thought she was his wife, came out of one of the cottages facing the driver's side of his car. She was yelling while rushing to the side of the pool and walking back and forth and back and forth along the poolside. She was obviously distressed and alternately shouting for him to get out of the water while loudly inquiring, What happened? What happened? After getting out of the car, the old fellow just turned back to the car and continued to look as if he, he couldn't believe that this was his car. And when he turned to walk to the side of the pool, he didn't know how to get out of the pool, much less how he got there. Now his wife tried to pull him by one of his arms up out of the pool, but others eventually came over. A few of them jumped in the pool, and, and they helped him out. Everyone imaginable came out of their cottages, and people from all around came to see what all the noise was about. I mean, you could see folks holding their hands over their mouths, turning their backs to the commotion, and hysterically laughing in disbelief. Well, the police soon arrived and put a blanket over the old fellow's shoulders and began taking a statement. Apparently, our out-of-state senior citizen thought he'd press down on the brake, but instead he pressed down on the accelerator and <laughs> into the pool he went. When we drove by the place on Monday, that car was nowhere to be seen. 
and so closed another chapter in my mental diary of old people driving. Don't you think that senior citizens should have known better than to be driving beyond their capable years, much less in a foreign environment, as all these out-of-state snowbirds were? We all should have known better. Why don't we confront these obviously impaired senior drivers? Why don't family members take those keys away and, and kindly tell their loved elders that it isn't safe for them to drive? It's bad enough that they might hurt themselves, but I think it's even worse that they'll likely hurt or kill somebody else. Someone much younger, perhaps someone just getting started in life and not at the end of theirs. For then we have another family asking, why was that old woman or old man still driving? Don't we, as a compassionate society, have a responsibility to step in and do what's right for these seniors and for those looking forward to living their full lives? Well, for the old codger who drove into the pool some 61 years ago, to us Arizonans this was just another snowbird tale. But as I reflect, it's an important one. In today's political world, our legendary snowbird is President Joe Biden. And he's no less reckless than that old codger who drove into the swimming pool back in 1996. Or the one that nearly killed me and my family in 1959. Neither of these old codgers nor Joe should be driving anything at their mentally compromised disposition. And it's not age per se, but the mental deterioration that often correlates with advancing age. Of course, the damage to the car in the pool could be easily fixed and forgiven. That's why we are required to have accident insurance. However, much of the damage Joe Biden is doing to America can't easily be fixed or fixed at all. Moreover, I for one am not prepared to forgive Joe for not turning in his politician's driver's license years ago. Can't people see that Joe can't drive our nation's most critical policies safely to any helpful conclusions? Instead, he's been captured by the radical left, those misnamed progressives, who are anything but progressive. Joe's puppet masters are pulling his political strings and driving America into the ground. The, the social radicals in the White House and the loudest in Congress, they want to build back better only after they have totally dismantled America. This isn't a conspiracy theory. This rhetoric is right out of the foul mouths of American socialists and Marxist. If you don't know it, groups like the Southern Poverty Law Center, the National Council on Family Relations, and the Black Lives Matter organizations are outright socialists and Marxists. They are intent on stripping our Constitution naked and rewriting it in their own ugly image. Build Back Better is the exact opposite of Make America Great Again. But back to the story of senile drivers and our responsibility to take the keys away. Shame on the Democrats who nominated Joe Biden for the presidency. They knew full well that Joe was mentally compromised. But in nominating Joe, they earned themselves two major gifts. First, they were hysterically fearful that an avowed socialist, Bernie Sanders, was going to win the nomination. So they launched a cancel culture campaign against Bernie and asked black Americans to support segregationist Joe Biden. Yes, I said segregationist Joe. Go ahead and research Joe's political speeches and his past policies. You'll be amazed at the things Joe said about segregation. Secondly, they found someone who appealed to the moderates, but was going to be easy to manipulate. 
And then to top it off, they found a lightweight airhead in Kamala Harris, who had already taken being a woman and being black as far as she could. And they made her vice president. Believe me when I say this is really no laughing matter. The point I'm trying to make is that I know, and Democrats do too, how easily these mentally fragile old men are manipulated. By my early 20s, I was a practicing respiratory therapist at Tucson Medical Center in Tucson, Arizona. There I treated thousands of what we called chronic lungers. These were predominantly old men with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or COPD. Many of them had the same type of dementia exhibited by Joe Biden and other congressional political leaders. These sick old men could easily get lost in their thoughts and often angrily lashed out without apparent provocation, eventually mumbling and shuffling their way down the hall. But with patience and kindness, you could bring these troubled fellows back to their hospital beds so you could treat their lung disease. And the next day, they remembered your face, but not your name even after treating them for weeks. Watching Biden these last months reminds me so much of those early days of clinical practice. In talking to their families, they assured me that none of these mentally crippled old lungers were still driving, and I thank the Lord for that. Nonetheless, I watched Joe shuffle out to the podium and and start right in on scolding the public for not submitting to his edicts. Harsh directives from Joe that aren't characteristically Joe Biden. There's no compromise in Joe anymore. In the past, Joe would float a political weather balloon and change his message and tone to correspond to the political winds. He'd have a a near-immediate course direction. But not today. Despite mounds of negative evidence and harsh reality about the economy, COVID-19, illegal immigration, national security, crime and violence, millions of folks being forced out of their careers by vaccine mandates, his mandates, and glaring meteor-sized supply chain craters, and Joe acts as if these life-impacting problems are, are to be expected. In fact, his minions like Jen Psaki would have us believe that the FBI could well show up at your door inquiring as to whether you're hoarding paper towels and toilet paper. Now, don't be surprised if Joe issues an executive order that there's a national shortage of paper products so the National Guard in each state will begin rationing these products on a strict schedule. Anyone exceeding the ration will find themselves in prison camp with all the parents arrested for protesting at school board meetings. Yes, Joe is old, forgetful, and grumpy. Gone is the compassion that Joe lathered us with during the presidential campaign. Remember, Joe was going to be the compassionate president in counterpoint to Donald Trump. Today, I watch brain-addled Joe threaten and demean people because they're not following his orders. But often, he can't explain his orders, nor does he believe we're owed a rational explanation. I mean, take, for instance, our exit from Afghanistan. It's most pathetic when he's approached with friendly questions from a fawning legacy media, 
and he walks away mumbling he can't answer questions or he'll be in trouble. With whom will you be in trouble, Joe? Are we watching elder abuse in the White House? The developing animus I have for President Joe Biden is probably misplaced. There isn't a President Joe Biden. There never has been one. What we see in front of our eyes is a shell that no longer holds a fair-weather, old-style Democrat politician. Instead, we have a radicalized, often mean and stubborn version of someone we don't even know. And that, my friends, is dangerous. For all the slanderous joking about President Trump with the nuclear codes, I am far more fearful of Joe Biden with any authority over anything. I don't even trust him to pardon this November's White House turkeys. Or do I trust Joe won't try to burn down the White House Christmas tree, mistaking it for a Republican espionage plant? I, I see a mixed-up, paranoid, angry Joe often flashing a smile where one is politically wrong and stooping over the podium and squinting to read the larger-than-life teleprompter in front of him. In fact, Joe's staff has built him a mini-oval office in a building across the street from the White House so that the teleprompter can be placed three feet away from Joe's eyes. If Joe would just put on eyeglasses, none of this would be necessary. But if we've learned anything from interacting with arrogant, demented political leaders, it's that they don't admit to any infirmary. And it's not just Joe. Have you listened to Nancy Pelosi speak these past months? She can hardly keep her dentures in her mouth. Why can't someone send her a tube of polygrip extra-strength denture adhesive? This would hardly improve her thinking. I've been dealing with old, stubborn, half-gone folks for my entire life. Some have amused me. Some have darn near killed me. But there's one in the White House that's putting us all at risk. So what's the alternative, Kamala Harris? I doubt you think this is a viable alternative. We've no one to blame but ourselves for the fix we're in. We must take the keys to the national car out of the hands of these ideologues by retiring their designated driver, that being Joe Biden. This means taking the Congress back. We've already had too many near catastrophes. Well, enough of my, my driving life. Let's take a quick break and return to talk about what's going on with parents, critical race theory, and transgender ideology in Virginia, as that governor's race is red hot. You all come back now. I'll be here. The best is yet to come. I'm excited to talk about a new product from Healthy Cell, AC11. This is a patented bioactive extract of Uncaria tomentosa from the Amazon rainforest. It supports cell DNA repair and health span. It's a dietary supplement. I'm excited to try it. Many are interested in longevity and attenuation of senescence. We know that telomere length and other uh, biologic measures are related to senescence in uh, 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 clinical and uh, preclinical studies, particularly of animal models. And I can tell you as a doctor, dietary supplements do hold the promise of attenuating repair and damage in our body due to stress, physical wear and tear, sunlight, etc. And there's a tremendous opportunity for supplements to help us in this area. And so Healthy Cell has brought a product to market for you to try as part of your health portfolio. So please go to HealthyCell.com and in the promotional code, 
list out loud for 20% off your first purchase of products from Healthy Cell. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. Hail, my fellow Americans. How did you feel watching footage on the news of domestic terrorists looting our stores and burning our cities down? Uh, You were probably disgusted and angry as much as I was. It's disturbing what's going on. Well, you'd be shocked to know that your shopping habits are supporting these extremists. Companies like Amazon, Nike, Disney, FedEx, it's an endless list. And they've been supporting these radical groups. Let's stop supporting companies that fund these extremist groups. We can all do our part. Visit shoptotheright.com and you'll find businesses in a nationwide database and companies that are aligned with our American values. Visit shoptotheright.com and let's all make a difference. Each of us is born with 30 trillion cells that make us. These cells determine how we feel, perform, sleep, focus, and how long we live. And to live our best life, all we have to do is feed ourselves. But most food and supplements don't reach our cells, keeping us from reaching our full potential. Make every cell count with Healthy Cell. Founded with a mission to empower people to take control of their own health at the most fundamental level, Dr. Vincent Jampapa, world-renowned cell researcher and medical doctor, created supplements that work at the cellular level to boost immune health, sleep better, focus deeper, and stay younger longer. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of any product. And that's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L. And use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Welcome back to the Frankly Daniel Show. In keeping with my show theme, we'll stick with our action plan to take the keys away from our crazy, aging, radicalized politicians. You know Joe Biden shouldn't be allowed to practice politics or dabble in the presidency any longer. It's high time we take the keys away from someone who's driving the nation into chaos and economic collapse. Why, you ask? We hold these truths to be self-evident. All men and women created by go. You know the you know the thing. COVID has taken this year, just since the outbreak, has taken more than 100 years. Look, here's the lives. It's just it's. I mean, you think about it. We can't afford it by just eliminating, beginning to treat treat work, reward work as much as wealth. Good old Uncle Joe. Anyway, every week I, I follow a large number of video sites, periodicals, and journals. I'm, I'm not sure what you've had time to view, listen to, or read this past week, so I'm, I'm going to share with you some of what I think are the most important things said by our politicians this past week. Well, at least I think these clips are both informative and entertaining. Much of what follows falls into that category of, once you've heard it, it's hard to forget it. The first clip is from Senator John Kennedy of Louisiana, one of my favorite characters. I'll keep reminding you of our mentally challenged Joe Biden in between some of these clips. Uh, Senator Kennedy and the clip that follows from Victor Davis Hanson serve to reinforce what I've said about Joe's mental incapacity and his radical political behavior. If you have a pulse and a marginal desire for a better life, 
you know that President Biden is in trouble and therefore America is in trouble. Me measured any way you want. The debacle in Afghanistan, which has emboldened Russia and China and Iran, uh, the unbridled inflation, gas prices, open borders, crime, a Justice Department that thinks parents are dangerous domestic terrorists, a Treasury Department that wants access to the checking account of every American who has a job. No, no wonder the American people are so angry. There, it's no wonder that so many Americans um, think that this administration doesn't care about them or their lives or their future. And Joe Biden basically said, look, I will govern from the middle. I'll be the second coming of, of Barack Obama, maybe a little left of middle. Instead, he's been the second cousin of Bernie Sanders. And his entire administration is owned lock, stock, and barrel by the Wolves. And they're not American. We have to eliminate the funding gap that exists between minority white and majority white and, and non-white districts. We have this notion that somehow if you're poor, you cannot do it. Poor kids are just as bright and just as tall as white kids. This next clip is from Victor Davis Hanson. I think the border has enraged people, but the supply chain has, has got the potential because it's the stuff of life. When Americans pay $100 and they cannot fill up their car, or they look at 2 million people who think they have a birthright to invade their country, or they look at ships all the way to the horizon and their shelves are empty, they're, they're thinking the civilization's collapsing. How could it happen? These are not political issues. And each one of those, there was a political agenda behind it that never, it never pulled 50%. Nobody wanted an open border. Nobody wanted critical race theory. Nobody wanted the New Green Deal. But Joe Biden, good old Joe Biden, the virtual president, everybody was of the turmoil of 2020. They thought he was Mr. Nice Guy. And he was the veneer. He was the vessel that carried those unpopular agendas, at least until two or three months ago. But now he's been so incoherent and mean-spirited and untruthful that he's actually, his person is a force, force multiplier of the unpopularity of the issues that brought this collapse. I think my plan, I know what my plan does. Senator John, I mean, no, no, but I mean, think of, I mean, it's not about, I, I know you're supporting by saying booing, but look, here's the deal. Played, you know, in the 2020 census, which is now, Two censuses ago, soon to be. Estimated that 200 million people have died, probably by the time I finish this talk. Comforting, isn't it? I take it by now, if you haven't been concerned about the 1.7 million illegal aliens apprehended at our southern border this federal fiscal year that just ended September 30th. Or you don't have kids in school, so all the fights about keeping CRT and gender ideology out of school curricula doesn't really bother you. At, at least you're aware of inflation. We're now paying the highest gas prices in seven years. By the way, seven years ago would be the Obama-Biden White House years. Federal economists estimate that between now and Christmas, higher gas prices will have taken $35 billion out of discretionary spending right out of our family budgets. This means that the money we would have spent on, say, Christmas gifts has gone into our gas tanks to keep our cars moving and our trucks moving. Now, a Fox poll this week reported that 
87% of the voting public are concerned or very concerned about inflation. Of course, with all cynical sarcasm intended, there's no Christmas gifts to buy anyway, since they're all on 112 cargo container ships outside the ports of L.A. and Long Beach. On Thursday of this past week, Joe Biden was on another CNN town hall, where he took questions from the totally Democrat audience, all pre-screened, of course. When confronted with supply chain issues, here's what Joe had to say that he was going to do to get things moving off the loading docks in those particular ports. Uh, Los Angeles and, uh, and uh, um, uh, um, what am I doing here? Is it Long Beach? Long or? Beach, thank you. And I know both the mayors. So I went to them and I said, what can we do? So I met with, and they're privately owned, these, these ports, the, the, these two. So I met with the business people. I met with all their major customers, the Walmarts of the world and all the rest. Who, there are like 70 ships waiting out there, unable to get unloaded. The supply chain problem is one of our nation's biggest problems, but Joe can't remember the two ports on the left coast. And the truth be told, there were 112 ships waiting to be unloaded as of the moment of Joe's town hall. But there's no waiting lines in ports in Miami, Texas, or Georgia. So instead of facilitating ships moving through the Panama Canal and to Republican red state ports, Biden is content to let the sh container ships just sit off the port for weeks waiting to unload in California. Sometimes it takes as long as three to four weeks for them to pull up and be unloaded. But keeping L.A. and the Long Beach ports open 24-7 makes no sense because there's no space to unload these ships. These ports are waiting for truckers to move these containers to warehouses throughout the country. So here's the next clip. Joe goes ahead and he really steps in it. No port there was open, open five days a week, 40 hours a week, 24-7. They've all agreed to it. They've agreed to it. Would you consider the National Guard to help with the supply yes, chain issue? absolutely. Positively, I would do that. Excuse me, the, the National Guard driving 18-wheelers? Unbelievable. Joe agrees to invoke the National Guard to drive 18-wheelers. First, if you're an 18-wheeler rig and your rig is older than 2011, you can't get a license in California to drive that truck because of environmental regulations. Yes, if, you, if your truck is more than 10 years old, no go. Second, only union rigs are allowed to drive 18-wheelers onto these two ports in California. Total union shop. So there's no independent truck drivers allowed. Trucks are hauling containers off, off of the LA and Long Beach ports to the California state line and then they're transferring these loads to other trucks, those with non-union drivers and those uh, uh, driving trucks that are older than 2011, and the products continue on their journey across America. I, I mean, honestly, this stuff just drives me nuts. So would, would you consider the National Guard for trucking? For Because there's a lot of yes. problems with not enough yes. truck drivers right but here's, now. And th that's why what we're doing now... Do you have a timetable for that? Well, I have a timetable to, first of all, I want to get the ports up and running and get the railroads and the railheads and the trucks in port ready to move because I've gotten Walmart and others to say, we're going to move stuff 
off of the port into our warehouses. For so, are you, but are you're actually talking about having national guardsmen or women driving is, trucks. The answer is yes. If we can't move, increase the number of truckers, which we're in the process of doing. No sooner than the end of this CNN town hall in Baltimore finished, the White House released a press notice that, in so many words, said the president doesn't have the authority to order a state's National Guard to do anything, including drive 18-wheelers across the country. Between the Senate, the Vice Presidency, and now the Presidency, nearly 50 years in federal politics, and Joe still doesn't know this basic fact? One final thing from this town hall I just I have to get to. Remember in the first half hour of today's program, I referenced pandemic-compassionate Joe Biden the counterpoint to mean and meaner Donald Trump. So here's what Uncle Joe had to say about Americans who have a constitutional right to refuse these mandates. Uh, Mr. President, let me ask you a follow about that. As, as many as, as one in three emergency responders in some cities like Chicago, Los Angeles, right here in Baltimore, are refusing to comply with city vaccine mandates. I'm wondering where you stand on that. Should police officers, emergency responders be mandated to get vaccines? And if not, should they be stay at home or let go? Yes and yes. The two things that concern me, one are those who just try to make this a political issue. Freedom. I have the freedom to kill you with my COVID. No, I mean, come on. Freedom. Number one. Number two the second one is that, uh, you know, the, the gross misinformation that's out there. It's all pretty funny, right? Uh, could you tell this was an entirely Democrat progressive party crowd? People who are vaccinated, by the way, are dying of COVID-19. And people who are vaccinated carry and can spread COVID-19. Misinformation? When I look up this word in the Urban Public Health Dictionary, there's a big fat photo of Dr. Fauci. Well, I'll come back to this town hall next week. There's so much more BS to dispute. Notice, Joe only answers questions, by the way, in front of a totally vetted, friendly, progressive Democrat crowd at these CNN town halls with uh, Cooper Anderson. This is his third CNN town hall as president, and he's had a couple with MSNBC. Well, like me, if you're still wondering how Biden got elected, here's Joe telling us, exactly how it happened. Well, the only thing we can do about it is be prepared. We have a whole group of lawyers who are going out to every polling, every uh, uh, voter registration physician in the states, the secretaries of state, making sure that they, in fact, have a game plan as to how they're going to allow the voting to take place. And that is exactly how it happened. They went out there and they changed the rules at the last minute because of the pandemic, and that's what happened. Referencing the same Fox poll I told you about earlier, 71% of the voting public are concerned or very concerned about what teachers are teaching our public school children. Because they're concerned, parents have been showing up in record numbers at school board meetings, and they aren't at all happy with mask mandates, soon-to-be vaccine mandates, teaching of critical race theory, and the associated issues with not only granting special privileges to self-proclaimed transgender students, but also with teaching lessons on sexual orientation and gender identity ideologies 
to students as young as kindergartners. Now this next series of clips are from the House of Representatives Judicial Committee's oversight hearing this past Thursday with none other than that old uncle, Uncle Attorney General Merrick Garland. There were several topics of interest during this six-hour hearing. Unquestionably, the most explosive topic happened to be Merrick Garland's memo of October 4, 2021, instructing the FBI and a host of other federal law enforcement agencies to attack the alleged national crisis around parents acting like domestic terrorists perpetrating so-called hate crimes against public school board members. My Frankly Daniel show last week dealt extensively with this topic, and you can find it on a, on a podcast at the America Out Loud website under the show's name, The Frankly Daniel Show, or by my name, Daniel Francis Baranowski, and look for the episode entitled, While Biden and Harris Focus on Racism, Abortion, and Gender Identity, America Fails. Now, to refresh memories, the National School Board Association sent a seven-page letter to President Joe Biden on September 29, 2021, asking for the Department of Justice's protection from parents attending school board meetings, of, of all things. Again, this letter describes these parents as domestic terrorists, perpetrating violent threats and potential hate crimes. On October 4th, five days later, Attorney Merrick Garland issued a stunning memo instructing the FBI and all federal district attorneys, I think there's 89 of them or so, and several other law enforcement agencies to initiate meetings with local law enforcement in all 14,000 school districts. Here's the opening comments by Jim Jordan, the ranking Republican on the Judicial Committee. Three weeks ago, the National School Board Association writes President Biden asking him to involve the FBI in local school board matters. Five days later, the Attorney General of the United States does just that. Does exactly what a political organization asked to be done. Five days. We've sent, Republicans on this committee have sent the Attorney General 13 letters in the last six months. It takes weeks and months to get a response. Eight of the letters, we've got nothing. They just gave us the finger, said, we're not going to get back to you. And all our letters were actually sent to the Attorney General. Here's a letter sent to someone else asking for a specific thing to be done. And in five days, the Attorney General does it. Here's what the October 4th memo said. Quote, I'm directing the FBI to convene meetings with local leaders. These meetings will open dedicated lines of communication for threat reporting. Dedicated lines of communication for threat reporting. A snitch line on parents started five days after a left-wing political organization asked for it. That's not political. I don't know what is. I purposely let this clip run long because Jim Jordan does such a remarkable job of setting up the entire day's questioning about this rapid response to a private progressive political group's request for federal oversight uh, from a list of several high-profile federal law enforcement agencies. Yet, there's not one solid example of a shooting. No one has thrown stones, bricks, or frozen bottles of water, or torched any school building, or burned any books. They've hurled some rather uh, creative negative statements at woke school board members, but nobody has been physically hurt. If you haven't read the National School Board Association's seven-page letter to the Attorney General and the Attorney General's response memo setting all of these agencies in action, 
You can you can find them everywhere on the web, and I highly recommend that you take a look at them. I, I've never seen anything like this before. Well, back to Jim Jordan. In your memo, you said that you are directing the Federal Bureau of Investigation to convene meetings with federal leader, federal local uh, leaders uh, and state leaders within 30 days of the issuance of this memorandum in each federal judicial district. 94 federal judicial districts, they got until November 3rd to have these meetings. How many meetings have taken place? I don't know the answer. I'm sure that there have been meetings, but I'm sure that they have not occurred. Any idea? Any idea how many meetings have taken place? I don't know how many meetings. I'm sure that there are, are not. There was so much urgency that five days after a political organization asked the President of the United States for FBI involvement, five days later you do a memo talking about a disturbing spike in harassment and violence and then convening this, this open line of communication for reporting on parents and you say start meetings within 30 days and you, can't come, you come to the Judiciary Committee and you can't tell us what's going on? Why does Attorney General still have keys to drive the car of the DOJ. I'm just, I'm just asking. So see if this clip reminds you of anybody. I know nothing. I see nothing. I say nothing. That's what Attorney General Garland sounded like the entire day in terms of these questions. I know nothing. I see nothing. I say nothing. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, March 25th, Joe Biden criticizes the Georgia election law. Three months later, the Department of Justice challenges it. September 1st, Joe Biden criticizes the new pro-life law in Texas. Eight days later, the Department of Justice challenges it. September 29th, the political organization asked President Biden to involve the FBI in local school board issues. Five days later, the Department of Justice does just that. Mr. Attorney General, was it just a coincidence that your memo came five days after the National School Boards Association letter went to the president? So we are concerned about violence and threats of violence across the board against school officials, against... Um, Is there any connection, board? Mr. Attorney General, with the school board letter and then five days later your memo to uh, uh, regarding school board issues? Obviously, the letter, which uh, was public and asked for assistance from the Justice Department, was brought to our attention, and it's a relevant factor in... Who gave you the letter? I'm sorry? How did you become aware of the letter? Who gave it to you? I read about the letter um, in the news. That's how I read about it. Do you believe this character? He learned about this highly provocative, libelous letter to the president from the National School Board Association by reading about it in the news? Is this how the attorney general gets all his important information from, from the news? Now, given how quickly he responded to the letter, uh, not even addressed to him, by the way, Congress should put all the requests to the Department of Justice in the news. It obviously works. Point out, not, the same day you did the memo, Justice Department sent out a press release, Monday, October 24, or excuse me, Monday, October 4th, 2021. The press release says, Justice Department addresses violent threats against school officials and teachers. Now, you, But let me just read from the third paragraph. According to the Attorney General's memorandum, the Justice Department will launch a series of additional efforts in the coming days designed to address the rising criminal conduct directed towards school personnel. Those efforts are extended, expected to include a creation of a task force consisting of representatives from the department's criminal division, civil rights division, executive office of U.S. attorneys, the FBI, the Community Relations Service, Office of Justice Programs, and the National Security Division. The National Security Division? It's as if the other 27 law enforcement agencies may not be able to handle this onslaught of parental domestic terrorists so the backstop is the National Security Division. The only group not included is the CIA, and that's because it's national, not foreign, and that department is under a different Biden incompetent. Please, 
please take the keys away. Take these keys away now. There's no way any of these Biden cabinet members should be driving policy or attempting to solve problems. Merrick Garland's responses to questions were so vocally weak that if he didn't have a microphone, you'd have needed someone to lip-read his answers. The next set of questions come from Congressman Mike Johnson from Louisiana. As you may have heard, Merrick Garland's daughter is married to the founder of Panorama Education, a critical race theory consulting firm. Given the timing of all this, your memo appears to have been motivated by politics more than any pressing federal law enforcement need. This is concerning to us, and it's worthy of investigation. It also concerns us that your actions may have been motivated by your family's financial stake in this issue. Published reports show that that your son-in-law co-founded a company called Panorama Education. We now know that that company publishes and sells critical race theory and so-called anti-racism materials to schools across the country. And it works with school districts nationwide to obtain and analyze data on students, often without parental consent. On its website, the company brags that it's surveyed more than 13 million students in the U.S. It's raised $76 million from powerful investors, including people like Mark Zuckerberg, just since 2017. In the last five years, scores of critical race theory peddling consulting groups have cropped up. I mean, they're like rootless weeds. Panorama Inc. is one of the biggest. They hold contracts with over 25% of America's school districts, supplying CRT and social-emotional learning materials to over 13 million students. Every one of these groups is radically progressive. All of their business models are the same. They come into a school district with survey methods and tools and conduct cultural awareness surveys and assessments. Then they sell these school districts solutions based on critical race theory and social-emotional learning. Now, allegedly, these products correct the racial bias, ignorance, and shortcoming deficits identified in their surveys. Parents got their own ugly lessons in these consulting methods by watching firms and watching what teachers were teaching during Zoom lessons to their children. They began showing up at public school board meetings and confronting their woke school boards. The school boards claimed that there was no such thing as CRT being taught in their districts, Parents organized and obtained, through Freedom of Information Acts, the contracts their school boards were cutting with these firms like Panorama Education. Critical race theory consulting is now an $8 billion per year industry. Fairfax County in Virginia, right next to Loudoun County, just finished signing on an additional contract with Panorama Education for a total of $5 million for assessment surveys and instruction in social-emotional learning. Woke school boards and the radical progressive national teachers' unions found that accusing parents of being racist wasn't working to eliminate parental criticism of CRT and other gender ideology lessons these groups wanted taught in public schools, mostly because many of the parents complaining the loudest were parents of color. So their next play was to call parents domestic terrorists and conspire with the Biden White House and the Biden DOJ to scare the tarnation out of parents by naming every federal law enforcement organization as party to a nationwide crackdown on parental dissent. Wait wait just a minute. The question is, the question is, the thing that has concerned many of those parents that are showing up at these school board meetings, the, the, the very basis of their objection and their vigorous debate, as you mentioned earlier, is the curricula, the very curricula, that your son-in-law is selling. 
So to millions of Americans, I mean, my constituents, I was home all weekend. I got an earful about this. So Merrick Garland's son-in-law has contracts with over 25% of all the school districts in the country, and they're selling CRT. Do you think it might be helpful somehow if the attorney general tells parents to back off of going to school board meetings and complaining about CRT? It, it is wait, wait just a minute. The, the question is, the question is, the thing that has concerned many of those parents that are showing up at these school board meetings, the, the, the very basis of their objection and their vigorous debate, as you mentioned earlier, is the curricula, the very curricula that your son-in-law is selling. Will, will you, Mr. Attorney General, will you commit to having the appropriate ethics designee review the case and make the results public? This memorandum is aimed at violence and threats of violence. I understand your talking point. You're not answering my question, Mr. Attorney General. With all due respect, will you submit to an ethics review of this matter, yes or no? Well, you can pretty much guess what the answer was to that question. (laughs) Gosh, our hour is coming to a close. But I'm not finished with this crime against parents, nor are our warriors in Congress. Yes, there's so much more to come next week. I hope at least I've begun to convince you it's time to take the driver's keys out of the hands of some very dangerous politicians. These people think they're driving us to a mythical socialistic utopia. There's no such place. I happen to like it right here in the good old USA. I hope you do too. Let's do talk therapy again next week. Until then, cheers and blessings. Blessings.